0: That was awesome. (laughs) Do you know how many thousands of churches in this country? would give everything they have to be led in worship like we just were led in worship by our young people. And, um, and if you didn't know the songs, if you didn't know a word, if you couldn't hear the notes, all you had to do was look at their faces and you were transported into the presence of the Lord, weren't you? That is great worship leadership, you guys. Thank you. What a blessing. What a blessing. Well, hi. <laughs> I'm Pastor Mark, and I'm really glad to welcome you to worship today. Last September, we began a journey through uh, what is probably Paul's most important uh, letter that he wrote. He wrote a bunch of the New Testament. One of the letters was called Romans. It's a long, it's a long sucker, and, uh, and it's long because he deals with a lot of really deep stuff. In the first 11 chapters, Paul takes us into um, Christian doctrines that have... Kind of unusual names like justification and uh, sanctification and glorification and constipation and <laughs> that 's not really one, but sometimes your brain feels that way actually when you 're trying to work through the deep stuff that Paul talks about in the first part of this book um, chapters twelve chapter twelve changes all of that if chapters one through eleven really are the theological parts of Romans. Chapters 12 through 16 are the practical parts. Here's where we begin to understand what what we're supposed to do with this. In the first half of the book, we've learned what it means to be a Christian. In the second half, we are learning how to live as Christians. So for the next few weeks, we're going to go very practical. What does it mean to live the good life? And I don't mean by good life the world's definition of good life. Beautiful house, beautiful spouse, beautiful kids, beautiful car, beautiful ira. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the good life as God defines it. A life that is peace-filled and joy-filled and significant. And who doesn't want to live that kind of life? So if you want a tip on how to live that kind of life, then you come to the right place. We're going to be actually living in Romans 12 for a while because I like this chapter a lot and I preach more of what I like. And uh, this is one of those. This is just a rich book. In fact, we're only going to look at the first two verses and at that breakneck pace we'll be about, you know, four more years before we're through. Now, we'll go faster, but really Romans 12, 1 and 2 is kind of the thesis statement, the theme for the rest of the book. So if you listen to this and pay attention, you're going to be getting a, a, a sneak peek at what Paul's going to be talking about in more detail in the chapters to come. This is one of the first verses I ever memorized when I was a young Christian. And uh, it's still, as I said in my, my letter, it means a lot to me. Listen now to God's word as it comes to us from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, would you take these words and make them your word to us? Would you do in us what we cannot do in our own strength? Renew our minds, bring us to life, for we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. If you were paying attention to um, to the news this last week, the world news, then you would have been astounded by something that we saw. When we saw the leaders of North Korea and South Korea come together for a handshake in the demilitarized zone that separates their countries. Uh, You may not have realized it, but it was a very significant moment. And not only did they shake hands on that borderline, something even more uh, astounding and off-script occurred when the North Korean President Kim invited the South Korean President Moon to step over into his country. It was spectacular all of the aides of course were aghast and horrified and shocked because they went off script but the men spent 30 minutes together and we are told they talked about reunification they talked about denuclearization and the whole world since then has been a buzz and it really ought to be it is the most promising step that we have seen towards ending a war that has been simmering for 70 years a war in which my father served And some of your relatives might have served as well. So this is a very encouraging thing. But as encouraging as it is, sensible people are going to guard their optimism. Because these two nations are divided on nearly everything except for race and language. One is a democracy, the other is a dictatorship. One is prosperous, the other is impoverished. One is guided by law. The other is ruled by a murderous tyrant. One functions economically and diplomatically as a member of the world community. and The other threatens the world community with nuclear war. One has a thriving religious culture, including the largest Christian churches in the world. Did you know that? And the other crushes religious expression. So the two nations, though being next to each other, could hardly be farther apart So we really are praying. I hope you will join in praying for a a reprise of the shocking occurrence of 1989. If you are old enough to remember when the Berlin Wall unexpectedly, shockingly came down, we couldn't have believed how quickly it had happened. Then wouldn't it be great if the Lord was at work in some way, in this same way, to, to bring something about? But with all of that hope, we are going to temper it with a good dose of reality. Why do I mention this? Because as vast as the divide between North Korea and South Korea, the divide between God's ways and human ways is vaster still. It's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in these first two verses of chapter 12. He says, do not be conformed to this world. If you take just about any measure of what it means to be human, you will find that the world's ideas and God's ideas are at odds. The purpose of life, the meaning of life, the meaning of sex, the meaning of marriage, the meaning of community, the wealth and ambition and religion could not be farther apart. John Stott, the great English commentator, has this to say. The standards diverge so completely that there is no possibility of compromise. This summer my family and I are going to be uh, traveling to Britain And uh, we're going to celebrate Cooper's graduation. We're going to celebrate, hopefully, Rachel's ordination. I do hope that when it comes time for us to leave England and come back home, that we will have less trouble than Pastor Ellis and his family did when when they tried to get back over here. But while we are there, we're going to visit London. While we are in London, we will undoubtedly use the tube. And while we're using the tube, we will undoubtedly hear the same warning everyone hears every time they get on a subway train in London. Do you know what that warning is? You do know what that warning is. Mind the gap. Mind the gap. Today I want us to mind the gap. The gap between God's ways and the world's ways. In two verses, Paul asks a very simple questions. He says, do you want to know God's will? Do you want to discern God's purpose for your life? And if you look at the last line of the text, he says, you may discern what is the will of God. What is good G. Acceptable, A. And perfect, P. Gap. We're going to mind the gap between God's world and our ways. Now there might be some here this morning who would, wouldn't would care to know what God's purpose and ways are for their life. You, you may be new in this spiritual thing. You may not necessarily call yourself a believer. And so you are definitely not cons- concerned yet or persuaded yet that God's ways are your ways, that you want to know what the Lord wills for you. And, and if that's where you are, we're so glad that you're here. But I'll bet there are a bunch of us who do care about this. We're interested in knowing how we mind this gap that exists between God's ways and our ways. So how do we do it? Well, in these two verses, Paul kind of gives us a theme of what we're going to be looking at in, in the chapters to come. But he says it very simply. He says, we will discern and obey the will of God when we change the way we act, And when we change the way we think, you might say, well, that's everything. And you might also say, hold up there, cowboy. You've just spent 11 chapters telling me that because of my sin, I am not capable of acting and thinking the way God wants me to. No matter how hard I try, you've told me I cannot be good enough to earn God's love and favor. This is what you said, these 11 chapters. So are you changing your tune? tune? You might ask. And no, I am not. God's forgiveness is absolutely an act of grace and mercy. In fact, if you'll notice, that's where Paul starts in this passage. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, what? By the mercies of God. Say it together. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. What is he talking about? All the mercies that he has spent the last 11 chapters describing. He has talked about how God has loved us. God has called us. God has saved us. God has adopted us. God has forgiven us. God has filled us with his Holy Spirit. God, 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 God has done all of these things. It is absolutely the work of God's grace. Absolutely the work of his initiative. These are the mercies of which he speaks. And he says because of that, he can call them brothers. Brothers. Because he's speaking to believers who have received these incredible gifts of God. We are not Jews. We are not Gentiles, as he addresses us early in the the book. He says, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who believe the things that he has talked about. Those who believe that God has sought them. God has saved them. God has filled them with the Spirit. We're not brothers and sisters in Christ. We cannot do the things he is about to ask us to do unless that is so. Unless God has forgiven us, unless God has saved us, unless God has filled us. But if we are indeed brothers and sisters in Jesus, children of God through the Holy Spirit, then Paul says that that Spirit makes it possible for us to live the way that we were created to live. To fulfill the destiny we were created to fulfill. And he summarizes that in two ways. He says, first of all, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you're good Sunday school students, you might recognize this from the Old Testament because this is temple talk. This is temple talk. We wouldn't be familiar with that because we don't have temples, we don't have burnt offerings, but Paul was writing to Jews and to pagans. And both the Jews and the pagans understood what a temple was. They understood what blood sacrifice was. They understood what burnt offerings were. And so he's talking about the temple to all of his audience. In fact, there are five words that he uses in just that little passage. He says, present. That's temple language. You're presenting your offering. Sacrifice. Holy. Holy was that which was set aside, set apart for God to be offered up to him acceptable that word actually means the aroma that goes up from a burnt offering to god's nostrils acceptable and finally worship present sacrifice holy acceptable worship this is all temple language but there is one huge difference there's a word that appears there that we would not expect to hear in conversation about temple sacrifice what is the word Thank you. You guys have heard it three times. It's only fair that you be able to have the answer. Living, that's right. Living. He uses the word living. We are to present ourselves as living sacrifices. Why is that? Because with the crucifixion of Jesus, the final blood sacrifice is done. Up until Jesus, every blood sacrifice was only temporary. You have a sacrifice. You sin the next day. you got to have some more sacrifice. They sin the next day. you got to have some more sacrifice. That's why they needed lots of flocks of lots of animals because there was a lot of sin to go around. But along comes Jesus and everything is different. That's what John the Baptist meant when he saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What do you think he was talking about? He was prophesying to the point one day when Jesus would hang from the cross, his veins would be opened, his blood would be poured out, and our sins would be forgiven forever. Jesus was the permanent, perfect Passover lamb for our, for our sins. And it never needs to be done again. Paul says you don't need to kill anything, you don't need to burn anything. What you need is a place upon the altar of your lives, yourselves, a living sacrifice. But he actually goes beyond that. He says, I want you to put your bodies on the altar as a living sacrifice. Now, we might assume that just means our whole selves, but that's not what the word means. The word means literally your physical body, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mouth. Interestingly, this would have been disgusting to to the Greek readers because they found the human body to be base and kind of vulgar. It was a necessary evil to house the nobler human spirit, but it was kind of gross. Paul says, no, it's not gross at all. I'm going to reclaim it for what God intended it to be in the first place. We're going to redeem his creation. And Paul says, I don't want a a religion that is just internal, musing on spiritual things. He says, I want a, a religion that is external too. The Holy Spirit living in us ought to change the way that we behave. It ought to change the way that we use these bodies of ours. One more reminder He is not saying that we behave so that God will notice us and take a liking to us and do nice things for us. He's not saying that. He's saying because God has noticed us, because God has taken a liking to us, because God has saved us, then we respond by acting differently. His Holy Spirit living in us allows us to live lives that align with His purpose and a life of gratitude. In other words... Paul is saying, if the spirit of Jesus lives in you, he should be taking control of your body parts. Those lips of yours that you use to speak foul words or gossip, those lips should be speaking words of blessing and encouragement. That middle finger that you so quickly lift up and salute to the driver next to you, or that forefinger that you point in accusation, he says, re- that ought to be redeemed so that these hands now become hands of kindness and calloused hands of service. Those eyes that watch trash TV, they ought to start looking at things in a different way, things that bring life. This is one that convicted me. Not long ago, I started to watch reruns of Friends, a 1990s sitcom. It was a, And I remembered it as being a pretty funny show. But as I sat down kind of a, 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 more of a binge watch after about four or five uh, episodes, I realized every single episode of this was about sex. And we're not talking about intimate relations between those who have, uh, living in the covenant of marriage. It was merry-go-round type sex. Who's sleeping with who this week? And I, I suddenly found myself disgusted at what I was allowing my eyes to drink in and I stopped doing it. We become a living sacrifice when we allow the Spirit to change the way that we use our body parts. The ancient church used to call this the mortification of the flesh. And by that we mean, they meant that we al- allow the Spirit to kill off the sinful ways that we use our body and then begin to redeem it. If Paul was here, he would ask this, I'll ask it on his behalf. Which of your body parts needs most to be redeemed by the Holy Spirit? You probably know what it is. Your spouse sitting next to you might know what it is. The rest of us, it might be a secret too, but God knows. What is the body part that the Spirit needs to redeem? Is it a mouth that speaks, or drinks, or smokes, or eats in deadly ways? Is it your ears that listen to toxic stuff? Is it your sexual parts that continue to behave as if they have never met Jesus before? If you're in Christ, you now have the power to present those body parts to the Lord as a living sacrifice, to say, I want to use my whole body in a way that honors you and worships you. So Paul would say, how we behave in the Spirit helps to mind the gap between God's ways and the world's ways. How we behave. So too, he says, does the way we think. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That word in the Greek, conformed, is syskematizomai. That's a mouthful. Why don't you say it? Syscomatizomai. I'm going to give an award for anyone who gets it right. What's the word though? That, what's it look like in the middle of that? Can you see schematic in there? Can you see scheme? That's what that word comes from. Paul is saying, do not let the world force you to follow its scheme. Another translator, Phillips, puts it this way. He says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. I love that translation. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. How I wish that Paul had had jello in his day. Because if if he did, he would have said this. Don't let the world squeeze you into this mold. Here's the world. Here is the mold. And what the world wants to do is pour you in there. And so when you come out, you will look like, act like, think like, dress like, talk like, behave like everybody else. The world wants us to conform, and the mold, the standards we are being pressed into, are diametrically opposed to the design that God has for us. If you stay in this, you will turn out like this. So if we're not going to be conformed, what do we need to be? What does he say? Transform. Say it. The Greek word is metamorpho. What is the word that we get from that? metamorphosis is absolute transcendent change it is the word that was used to describe jesus when he was on the on the mount of transfiguration when he suddenly turned white and almost translucent they could hardly look at him he was utterly changed and paul is saying the same spirit that transformed that metamorphosed the lord on the mount of transfiguration that spirit is at work in you too How are we going to be thus transformed? He says, by the renewal of your minds. And how do we renew our minds? Well, by doing what we're doing right here, for starters. By meeting together in worship and by studying God's word. The Bible, the revealed word of God, interpreted to us by the power of the Holy Spirit... That is how we begin to think God's thoughts and live God's ways in God's world. That is how we discern God's will for us, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, the gap. This week I learned that GQ, Gentleman's Quarterly, that magazine to which everyone turns for deep thoughts on literary criticism, (laughs) GQ just published an issue... Featuring the 21 most overrated books of all time. The books they said that you could die without ever having read. Guess which one was number 12 on GQ's list? The Holy Bible. Here's a part of the article they wrote. The, the Holy Bible is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious... Foolish, and even at times ill intentioned. By the way, sententious means pompous and preachy, like writers who use the word sententious. Silly us, here we were thinking all the time that this all-time bestseller, five billion copies and counting, is in fact the best thing that has ever been produced, not by man, but by the Spirit of God. Silly us. Here we were thinking that this message in this book has changed billions of lives. That, in fact, it is the most important book that has ever been written. That by reading it and living it, we can discern God's will and renew our minds instead of allowing ourselves to be just one more wobbly, spineless, gelatinous, unthinking blob that's punched out of the world's mold. Our kids especially are being squeezed. Our kids especially are being squeezed to conform. We always face that in our teen years, but I think in ways that have never occurred before. Where what they are confronted through, through their music and through the rest of the media and through a, a groupthink educational process continues to exert tremendous pressure on them to conform. That's why I think what we are celebrating today is so worthy of celebration, so noble. And one of the things that is going to be the the top of the the whole thing, the frosting on this Youth Sunday cake, is that we are going to welcome 19 young disciples into membership in God's church. 19 young people who are saying, I am not going to allow myself to be poured into the world's mold. I am going to allow the Spirit of Christ to transform me into the unique and beloved and gifted and called person that God intends for me to be. These young people that you are about to meet, they are revolutionaries. They deserve to be celebrated, and you're going to see them in just a moment, but would you tell them how glad you are that they are willing to take this kind of stand against this world?
1: Well, one thing's for sure, you're never going to look at Jell-O the same. No, but what Pastor Mark said is, is right, and he hit it right on. This world, man, they're not holding back to, to get our students to conform. Do you know there's companies and organizations out there that spend millions, if not tens of millions of dollars to understand and research teenagers? And they do so willingly. Why? Because they know by doing that, they're going to make billions, it says every year, teenagers spend billions to tens of billions of dollars on products and things, and um, and so these companies go out, and they hire the best of the best. They find people who will study, analyze, dissect, and, and do everything they can to know teenagers better than they know themselves, what they like, what they dislike, what the trends are, what's in, what's out, what platforms they're using, what things are they doing to communicate with each other, and they'll spend the money because they know they can get their loyalty and ultimately their money. This world, man, they're not holding back. But there's someone who knows our kids better than, those, better than them, and that's the Holy Father, the one who created them, the one who knows them. Another thing I want to point out here is Chapel Hill. You know these students. You care for these students. I've shared this story before. Four, four and a half years ago, I was being interviewed by Chapel Hill for the position of director of middle school. And there was something that set Chapel Hill apart from all the other churches that I had been interviewing with, and even some churches that I had worked for. And that was that Chapel Hill loves its youth. I flew home to California, and when I got home, you know, I told my wife, I was like, I think, I think God might be calling us to California, which was a to Washington, because... Uh, Which was a shocker because I was California through and through. Born and raised, always lived 20 minutes from the beach, surfer, and I never thought I would leave. And so when I told my wife, I think we're going to be going to, to Washington, she goes, well, slow down. They have to want you too. And, you know, I'm thankful that you did. Because that was it. I saw how much this church loved its youth. The other thing that I've been able to see here as a testament to the fruit that is happening amongst our youth ministry... Is, is kind of how the involvement of our, our students are. Four years ago when I started, we had three high schoolers serving in the middle school ministry. Today we have over 30. And this is not, yeah, we can celebrate that. And this is not a just come, show up, and serve kind of a thing. There's a lengthy application process they have to fill out. Then they have to meet with me one-on-one where I grill them. Uh, some of our students got a lengthier, you know, interview process. Yeah, Braxton knows what I'm talking about. And then they have to commit to showing up every single week to serving middle schoolers, and they do. Week in and week out, they're here Wednesday nights discipling and mentoring, mentoring middle school students. And it's amazing to see the, the spiritual maturity that's rising up from them. The other way we're seeing it is through Sunday morning. If you look up here, hello, middle schoolers. Yeah, that's right. Hello. They're shy. They didn't know I was going to point them out. A few years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. We weren't even in this service. And now, every week, we get to be up here worshiping with all of you uh, as we do our Sunday morning program. And we've seen upwards of 50 middle schoolers showing up on Sunday morning. You get, that is because Chapel Hill loves its youth, because of your generosity, because of your dedication and commitment to prayer, that we are seeing a thriving student ministry here. And this morning we're going to continue to celebrate as we see 19 students who've committed a year of their time to meeting regularly, to memorizing the Apostles' Creed, uh, learning what it means to be a member of this church and a part of this denomination. And we'll get to celebrate some of them as they are baptized into into the, the family of God. And so we are blessed this morning to live into, again, what you have already been participating in since uh, since you've been here, so this morning we're going to welcome up the confirmation students. So come on up now. Now the first thing we're going to do this morning is we're going. To, these students are going to recite the Apostles' Creed, and though they've memorized it, and though we all know we know it by heart, um, we're going to have the words up on the screen, and we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed with them. Uh, So if you would, join me. So, I believe in God, the Father, mighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Well in, done. In a moment, we're
0: going, to, um, we're going to ask our young members the, qu- mem- the questions of membership. These are the questions that you want to answer as far as your membership in the church and your faith in Christ. You ready? Who is your Lord and, Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior? Do you trust him? Do you intend to be his disciple, to obey his word, and to show his love? Do you? Will you be a faithful member of this congregation, giving of yourself in every way, and will you seek the fellowship of the church wherever you may be? Will you? Will you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and to the spiritual oversight of this church session? Will you? Now that you have publicly affirmed your faith in Jesus and have been baptized and have been approved by the church session for active membership, I declare you entitled to all the privileges of full fellowship with the church as well as all the duties and responsibilities accepted from those who love Christ and seek to worship Him by ministry and service. Welcome your new members to your church.